So, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. We're looking at the Ten Commandments today as we continue to work our way chronologically through the Bible. Last week we looked at the Exodus. God kept his promises. Promises to Abraham to multiply Israel, to have Israel suffer enslavement in Egypt, to judge Israel's oppressors, to bring Israel out of the land of their enslavement, and to bring them out with many possessions. God accomplished all of this. He accomplished the exodus of Israel from Egypt. But God used the Egyptians to glorify him in one further act. What was that act? Yeah, Steve. That's right, the deliverance at the Red Sea, where God not only brought the Israelites through the waters, but he caused the waters to come back on the Egyptians and destroyed them. Here was another fantastic deliverance of God to be remembered for generations. And the Israelites reacted appropriately, as we talked about last week, with fear and belief in God. Fear of God, belief in God, and we should react in the same way, with that holy fear, that reverence of God, and belief in God. Because God showed Israel, God showed the Egyptians, and he showed us that I am is I am. You know that phrase, I am the Lord, but literally, I am who I am. But apart from God's amazing provisions and deliverance, something else stood out last week in our discussion of the Exodus. Despite God's displayed power, what did Israel display? They just demonstrated fear, anxiety, and complaint. They continually charged Moses, and by extension, God. They charged Moses with wrong for bringing them out of Egypt and into hopeless-looking situations in the wilderness. They questioned God's love, God's power, and God's wisdom, along with God's choice of Moses as a leader. Now, how did God respond to these first complaints of the Israelites? He just graciously provided whatever it is they were complaining about. You would think that God would have chastened them, disciplined them, destroyed them, but he doesn't. He just graciously provides them with what they cry to him about. Now, later on, God's responses would be more severe. But But we're seeing, we saw, God is a God who is slow to anger. He's being gracious and patient with the Israelites, saying, you should have learned this by now, but I will teach you again. Later on, though, his patience would give way to his holy anger and justice. But these are yet the early stages of Israel's journey. So God is going to teach them again. The Lord will always provide. It will be in his good way and his good timing, but he will provide. Do not fear. Don't be anxious. And don't complain. Questions about last week's material? All right. Well, God called out a people to be his own possession. But now God is going to give them his law. His rules for how they must act as a people, starting with the Ten Commandments. Before I forget, we're getting ready to order our curriculum for the next quarter, our materials for the next quarter, and if you would like a workbook, one of the free workbooks to go along with the class, please email me or sign up on the sheet that I placed in the back table. You can even get up right now to go put your name in that sign-up sheet. I won't be offended, but if you want a free workbook, go ahead and put your name in that sign-up sheet so we can order you one and get you one. But anyways, here's our outline for today's lesson. We're going to look at the circumstances in which Israel received the Ten Commandments, 
We'll examine the Ten Commandments themselves, and then we'll talk about the purpose of the Ten Commandments, and really all of God's laws, all of God's commands. Let's pray now. Father, you are holy. You dwell in an approachable light. Thank you that you have called us out to be a people to yourself, but it's only because you provided a way. Lord, as we're going to see in the lesson today, it's only based on your mercy that we can be your people, because though your covenant is good, though your laws are all good, there's no way that we could there's no way that we could keep them. So we thank you, Lord, for providing a way that we can be with you, even though you were the holy, great, exalted God, we can be your people. Lord, give me ability to explain now and open the hearts of the people who are listening to understand, believe, and to apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to start by examining the circumstances in which Israel received the Ten Commandments. Now, we're actually going to overview a big section of Scripture here, but it's important that we do this because sometimes, depending on the movies we've seen or paintings or cartoons we've watched portraying the events of the Exodus and the Ten Commandments, the receiving the Ten Commandments, we might actually have the wrong idea in our minds of what happened, or at least the wrong sequence of events in our minds for what happened. So let's recenter ourselves by overviewing the events around the receiving of the Ten Commandments. We're actually going to be looking at chapters Exodus or chapters 19 to 34 in Exodus. It's a lot. I'm going to be summarizing some sections, but also reading certain sections of Scripture so that we get a good idea of what happened. And we're starting in the beginning of chapter 19. Exodus 19, we'll ask a few questions at the end of this. But Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6. Oh, I should also say before we look at this verse that... Remember, the people of Israel left Egypt after midnight on the 14th day of the first month at Passover. That, that would be the commemoration of Passover. The 14th day of the first month was when Israel departed from Egypt at, mid, at midnight. Now look at Exodus 19, verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to this house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. After this, Moses comes back from the mountain, reports God's words to the elders of Israel. They agree to keep the covenant of the Lord. And then Moses returns again to the mountain with their affirmation and tells the Lord. God then warns Moses that no person or creature is to touch the mountain, Mount Sinai. If they do, that person or creature must be stoned. God also tells Moses to consecrate the people for three days in preparation of them hearing God himself speak. Now look at Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20. So we make our way through these, um, these events. Verse 16. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, 
that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. In the remainder of chapter 19, God sends Moses back down the mountain to warn the people one more time about approaching the mountain. Chapter 20 begins with God speaking to the people from the mountain and telling them his Ten Commandments. We'll skip that section for now. But let's look at the end of that, how the people reacted. Verse 18 of chapter 20. Down to verse 21. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it. Oh, I'm sorry, that's 19. Chapter 20, verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. After this, Moses again returns to the mountain. And in chapters 21, 22, and 23, God gives Moses various laws for Israel and affirms his promise to give them the land of Canaan if they will be faithful to God's covenant. Now look at Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8. Verse 3, chapter 24. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. After this, Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, or Aaron's sons, and 70 elders, they travel partway up the mountain where they see God in a limited revelation and they eat a covenant meal in his presence. Then God calls Moses back to the mountain and tells Moses that God will give Moses tablets of stone with God's commandments on them. Thus Moses begins his first 40-day stay on the mountain. He stays there straight, 40 days, 40 nights. During this first day, Moses receives all God's instructions for building the tabernacle. These instructions are recorded in chapters 25 to 31. 
We'll look at those more closely when we discuss the tabernacle next time in Sunday school, next, um, next class. But if you go to chapter 31, verse 18, we'll see the conclusion. Moses is with the Lord these 40 days, getting all these instructions about building the tabernacle. Now look at chapter 31, verse 18. Chapter 31, verse 18. When he, that's God, had finished speaking with him, that's Moses, upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. Now, while Moses is on the mountain during these first 40 days, something goes horribly wrong back in the camp of Israel. Does anyone know what happens next? They build a golden calf. Now, remember... Not too long ago, they just affirmed, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Moses sprinkled the blood on them. But now, Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. Let's read that. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Meanwhile, on the mountain, God tells Moses what the people of Israel have done. And he tells Moses to go down to the people, threatening to destroy all of Israel. Moses, however, intercedes on behalf of Israel, and God relents of his plan to kill all of the Israelites. As Moses comes near the camp, he sees the wickedness of Israel, and he breaks God's tablets in anger by throwing them to the ground. He grinds the golden calf into powder. He mixes it with water and then makes Israel drink it. Moses then confronts Aaron, and then in Exodus 32, 25-26, we read this. Verse 25, chapter 20, or 32. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. Just as an aside, the phrase out of control translated a little uniquely depending on the, the version of the Bible you have. The ESV translates it as broken loose. The NIV says running wild, and the King James Version says naked. People of Israel are naked. Now Moses orders that the Israelites who persist in idolatry, who persist in their idolatrous revelry, are to be put to death. And the Levites carry out his order. They take their swords and they kill 3,000 men of Israel. Order is restored, and Moses then seeks again to intercede for Israel by meeting with God in a special tent, the tent of meeting. And then God calls Moses back to the mountain for Moses' second day stay of 40 days. 
at the end of chapter 34, Moses returns from the mountain with two new stone tablets written on by God. Right, so there's our summary of events. Just a couple questions um, for us to note based on those things. How much time had passed between the Exodus and the receiving of the law? I hear murmurs. How much time? Well, it was in the third month, and they had left on the 14th day of the first month, so about one and a half months, or one and a half to two months. This date, the reception of the law, is traditionally placed 50 days after the leaving of Egypt by the Israelites. This then makes the date of receiving the law 50 days after Passover, which is the same date as the Israelites' Feast of Weeks, later known in the New Testament as Pentecost. So about 50 days later. Now, where did all of these events take place? In the wilderness, but we're now in a particular region. We're in Sinai, the region of Sinai, and these events take place at Mount Sinai. This mountain is also called Mount Horeb in the scriptures, and it appears to be one of the mountains of the Sinai Peninsula. So that's that area of land between Africa and the Middle East, just the northeast tip of Africa. Now, the exact location and identity of Mount Sinai is unclear. And there are a number of mountains that have been suggested as the biblical Mount Sinai. And there are reasons to see them as good candidates, but we're not exactly sure. There are a number of mountains in the Sinai region. Now, when the Israelites were worshipping the golden calf as, as their god that delivered them from Egypt, why should they have known it was wrong to worship that idol? based on the sequence of events we just looked at. What's that, Pastor? Yeah, they had already heard the Ten Commandments from God. Know their gods before me, and don't make an image of anything you see on the earth, or in the sky, or under the earth. They heard those commandments. They heard from Moses again later. Um, God's commandments are a little bit more expanded, and they said, we will obey these things. So they couldn't claim ignorance at all. Moreover, God had already judged the idols of Egypt as part of his plagues. And their theological heritage never used idols to portray I am. So they should have known. Well, now that we've seen the the sequence of events surrounding the reception of the Ten Commandments, let's look at the commandments themselves. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. This we'll look at a little bit more detail. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. We'll look at each command and make observations. Verses 1 to 3. Then God spoke all these words, saying, remember, he's talking to all of Israel at this point. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment, to love and serve God only. No other gods. No one equal to God. No one greater than God. And notice here that even before God gives the commands, he reminds Israel about who he is. I am who I am. Your God, the God who powerfully delivered you from Egypt. And now I'm commanding you these things. That's the first command. Verses 4 to 6. We'll look at the next. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the second commandment is not to make or worship any idol, not any idol of the true God. Don't try and fashion an image of Yahweh because his image cannot be captured or his glory cannot be captured by any image. And definitely don't make an idol of a false deity. God specifically warns them not to create images based on what they see in heaven, on earth, or in the waters under the earth. And God gives a reason for this command. What's the reason? He is a jealous God. I heard heard one of you say it. It's his own character. I, the Lord, am a jealous God who will repay wickedness with judgment and obedience with kindness. This is an interpretive side note. You see there at the end where he talks about judging to the third and fourth generation. God is not saying here that God punishes children for the sins of their parents. God expressly denies doing that in other sections of Scripture. He says children are not to suffer for the sins of their parents. But sinful behavior has a tendency to get passed down from generation to generation. Children do learn from the sins of their parents, and they often imitate them. So God's promise here is to judge all wickedness, no matter how far in generations it goes to. He will judge it from its start, and he will judge it to its finish. But he will reward those who are obedient. So that's the second commandment. Now look at the third, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The third command is not to dishonor God's name. Specifically, not to take it in vain. To take God's name in vain is to use God's name uselessly or deceitfully. That's what the term in vain means. It can refer to being useless or deceitful. Now, how might someone use God's name in vain? Either back then or today. Yeah, they can use it as an oath, as an expression of anger, as a curse. How else? Yeah, Rob. Right. Using it casually, using it nonchalantly, using it as a joke. Also, used deceitfully. I don't hear people saying this too much anymore, but I remember growing up, people would always say, I swear to God that this is true. But, you know, they're just, a lot of times they're not telling the truth. So they're treating God's name lightly as they swore by his name. So yeah, there, there are lots of different ways that people can take God's name in vain. And isn't it sad, when we talk about reverencing God and reverencing His name, isn't it sad that so many of the curse words of our society, and even societies other than ours, are misuses of God's name and that which is related to Him? Like, OMG, God, Jesus, Christ, damn, hell, and holy blank. All these things, they show a, a disdain or a flippantness about God and His holiness. Yet they're so commonly used in our society. And I notice the warning God gives with this command. God will not hold you guiltless if you treat his name, and by extension his holiness, flippantly or with contempt. Now let's look at the fourth command. Verse 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, 
you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the fourth commandment is to rest on the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath by resting on it and not doing any work. Now which day of the week was the Sabbath for the Jews? The the seventh day, which would correspond to our Saturday. That's our seventh day of the week. And what is the basis for the Israelites keeping the Sabbath? It's the reason God gives. Because of what God did in creation. God worked six days and rested on the seventh, making the seventh a holy day. And he wanted the Israelites to also reverence it as a holy day by resting just as God did. All right. Now let's look at the next commandment, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The fifth command is to honor your parents. Honor your parents. And notice the command does not simply say, obey your parents. Obedience is one of the most important ways that children must honor their parents. But it's not the only way. What else is part of honoring one's parents? Yeah. Jesus used that in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when he said, you know, um, people circumvent the law by putting in their own own man-made rules. And so, in other words, if if your parents needed some financial help, he just said, well, you know, what I've already given is is a gift uh, devoted to God. So, you know, lack of helping. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. Thanks for mentioning that. In the New Testament, we see one of the ways that people were supposed to honor their parents, but weren't, is that when their parents needed financial help, the people refused to give it by saying, oh, I'm sorry, I've already dedicated that wealth or that, those possessions to God. I can't give them to you. So that's one of the ways you're supposed to honor your parents, you're supposed to help them, help provide for them. What else? Yeah, Sue. Yeah, being respectful in the way you... Uh, Treat your parents, speak to your parents, the way that you talk about your parents, being caring towards your parents. And we could say a number of other things. Not acting or behaving in a way that would bring dishonor to your parents. Um, I think I had a couple others. Mm. Oh. Yeah, speaking well about them. Promptly obeying them. I know this is something that you probably emphasize to your kids. It's not simply obedience, but prompt obedience and obedience from the heart because that gives honor rather than, okay, I guess you can make me do it. No, that's not honoring to the parent. This is what God commands. Now notice there's no qualifier to this command. Your parents must still receive honor from you even if they sin, even if they act unwisely, or if they are unbelieving. God still says, honor your parents. But notice there's also a positive promise to this command. If you obey this command, your days will be prolonged in the land that God gives you. That's what God told Israel. In other words, you'll live longer. You'll be blessed if you honor your parents. Now we'll take the next verses together, the next commands together, since their verses are very short. Look at verses 13 to 16. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness did I want to go that far? Yeah. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. So we have to see the next four commands. The sixth commandment forbids taking innocent life. You shall not murder. 
do not murder. The seventh commandment forbids adultery. The eighth forbids theft. And the ninth forbids giving false testimony against others. Now the King James Version translates verse 13 as kill, not murder. You shall not kill. But does God ever permit killing? He does. In what circumstances? In certain circumstances of self-defense, we'll even see in the, in the law, depending on if somebody breaks into your home and if it's night or if it's day, there are certain parameters about whether you're, it's okay if you accidentally kill that person in order to protect your home and protect yourself. So there's that. Yes, Rob? Yeah, if God were to forbid killing, then he would be invalidating his own law because many times he charges the authorities to put to death those who shed blood or those who commit certain other grievous sins. Capital punishment is killing permitted by God. And then God also permits the killing that comes with war. Now, that doesn't say that necessarily that all wars are justified, but we see that God himself commissions Israel to take part in wars. So there are times where God permits killing. So kill is probably not a good translation of that verse. Murder is a better translation. It's the, it's the idea of you're taking innocent life. You do not have the authority. You are not permitted to take the, to the, take the life of another person in those ways. Finally, we have verse 17, the last commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The final command is, do not covet. What does it mean to covet? It often involves envy. Roy, what were you going to say? Okay, um, I'll repeat your comment. The Hebrew has to do with delighting in, taking pleasure in, and desiring something. What were you going to say, Sue? To want what belongs to someone else. What's, what's tricky about these terms when we say desire and want is that we have to understand them properly because simply to want something or simply to desire something is not necessarily wrong. But it's the, it's the quality of that desire. The New Testament gives us some understanding about this when it talks about idols and when it talks about lusts. To covet is the same thing as to, as to lust after something. To want something so badly that you are not happy or satisfied without it. It is to make that thing into an idol where if you do not receive it, you are no longer fulfilled. You are no longer satisfied. It's not necessarily wrong to want something. You may say, oh man, I could really go for a burger today. It does not mean that you're coveting. But if you, it is wrong to want something to the point that you want it more than God, where you say, if I don't get this thing, man, I am not going to be happy. Man, I'm not going to be satisfied. You have to be okay with not having it. It's not wrong to want something, but you have to be okay with not having it, because otherwise that is coveting. And you can usually tell you're coveting because you will feel angry depressed, agitated, or envious without that thing. And some of you mentioned envy. Yeah, envy often accompanies coveting because there's, there's something not wrong or there's something wrong with you inside in terms of how you want other things. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, King Ahab, Naboth's vineyard, right? Yeah, he wanted it, and when he didn't get it, what did he do? He, like, went and pouted on his bed. He wouldn't eat anything. He's like, oh, he wouldn't let me have the vineyard. I mean, that's a very obvious example of, of coveting, and um, it led to other sin. God gives a few common examples of, of things that people covet about in this command. Coveting your neighbor's house, wife, servant, animal, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Not to covet any of those things. Now, what's different about commandment number 10, do not covet, as compared to commandments 2 through 9? You can see them here. What's different about commandment number 10? Yeah, Danny. Ah, very true, right? We can more or less verify whether someone is keeping uh, 2 through 9. There's an external aspect to those laws, and we can see that. It's obvious if you've committed murder because there's a dead person. But it's not so obvious if you covet. Sometimes you can tell that somebody is coveting, but it's something that's inside. It's something that's in the heart. And in this way, commandment 10 is actually similar to the first, where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. In your heart, you must love and serve God only. The commandment 10 definitely reaches into the heart. It focuses on the heart. Now let's ask some interpretive questions about these commandments now. You may have noticed that the commandments can be divided into two. Two main categories. What two categories? Yeah, Danny. Exactly. Uh, I'll just go back for a second. But the first four commands... They all have to do with God and not really other people. They're about how you reverence, how you obey, how you serve God. While the the latter six commandments, commandments five to ten, they all have to do with your relationships with other people, your neighbor. So some have termed it, there's a vertical element to the Ten Commandments, the first four, all about you and God. And then there's a horizontal element. Commands five to ten all have to do with others. Now, why do commands one to four appear first. We're going to make an inference, but I think we can make a a strong inference. Exactly. It's primary. It's more important. And, as you're saying, chronologically, it must happen first. If you do not have a right relationship with God, you will not be able to have a right relationship with others. Loving God is the only way that you'll be able to love others. So it makes sense that it appears in the law first. Conversely, if you're not obeying the latter commands, you must not be obeying the former commands, because they go together. Indeed, these commands are all interwoven into one another, so that there's literal force in James' exhortation, James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. The Ten Commandments are all interwoven together. If you commit murder, you dishonor your parents, you um, dishonor God's name, you are not showing, or you covet, you, you are um, not loving God and serving Him only. You violate multiple commands whenever you sin. And it all starts with, do you love and serve God only? In perfect parallel to this concept of the, the two parts of the Ten Commandments, listen to what Jesus says in the New Testament when He was asked about which commands of God were the greatest. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. And he said to him, 
and an answer. What's the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Another question. Israel was forbid from worshiping idols in command number two. But do people still worship idols today? They do. How? What's one way? Yeah. We're talking about not necessarily statues, but just things that people want, which they make into idols. They make it more important than God. It becomes an idol in their own mind. Things like money, love, power, pleasure, fame, popularity, success, possessions. Definitely in the West, we make these into idols, even if there is no statue. Yeah, Ram. That's true. Uh, In a way, we use the term idol to describe celebrities or very successful athletes, but they do become idols in a way. Kind of like, if I could just be like them or if I could just imitate them, then I would be happy. If I could just have what they have. And they they become another avenue to idolatry. But it's not the only way. How else do we see idolatry? Yeah, Steve. Hmm. I have to look up the verse, but there, there, you know, there's um, we might not think of certain sins as as idolatry, but it's it really is. Yeah, you're right. I'll repeat your comment, Steve. Certain sins, immorality, definitely being a, a prime example, they're just idolatry. Uh, even the New Testament makes that connection. Yeah, any type of sin is a form of idolatry or covetousness. So we could say that idolatry is very prevalent in that way. Even more obviously. I would argue that when people create false versions of the true God in their mind, that is also idolatry. If someone says something like, well, my God will never send, send, send anyone to hell. <clears throat> my God will never send anyone to hell. Or my God will never forbid any form of love. You can love whomever you want. Or my God declares that some races are inferior to others and are to be persecuted. Well, you've created a God in your own mind. You've, you call it the true God. You may give it the same name, but that's not the true God. You're like the Israelites who make a golden calf. That's not the God who led them out of Egypt, even though you say it is. These are the idols of man's own minds. And then we do have literal statues today. Various gods and saints are worshipped as idols. Some religions, like Hinduism, still use statues as part of their worship. But idolatry has seeped in Christianity as well, in statues and paintings of Christ, the Father, Mary, and various saints being worshipped. Now, there are many rationalizations and excuses for this behavior. We could talk about those maybe at the end if if we have time. But in the end, veneration of the images is idolatry, and it's expressly forbid by the second commandment. Don't make any image of God. Nothing of the earth below, heaven above, or the water beneath the earth. Another question. Oh, I'll just make one more comment. God will not tolerate competition with any idol. As he said, he is a jealous God. Now, Israel was charged with keeping the Sabbath. Though if you know, if you know the scriptures, you know that Israel is not very good at keeping this command. 
They often broke the Sabbath. Now, why would keeping the Sabbath be difficult, considering that it's a kind of a nice law? You're not allowed to work one day of the week. Why was that difficult to keep? Or why might it have been difficult to keep? Ah, yeah. It's an extra day to make profit, perhaps get you the pleasures that you desire. And along those lines, yeah, Judy? That's exactly right. I imagine if we had a a law in our country about not working on one day of the week, you'd have a lot of protests to that because people would be like, but I need that extra day. How am I going to survive if I don't work that extra day of the week? And I'm sure many Israelites would would think the same thing at certain points. Uh, If I don't work on the Sabbath, then I won't be able to get what I need. In fact, it wasn't just a Sabbath day, a seventh day at the end of the week, but God even commanded Sabbath years. And when it came to farming, he says you can farm for six years, but on the seventh, don't farm. Just let whatever grows naturally grow and and eat that to support yourself, but don't harvest and store anything away. And God even um, anticipates their question, well, what will we eat if we don't harvest the seventh year? And God promises, I will so bless your harvest in the sixth year that it will provide for the sixth, the seventh, and even the eighth year from that one harvest. Trust me and give the land its Sabbath. But time and again, Israel didn't do that. They didn't give the land its Sabbath, and they didn't give the week its Sabbath because they worried. They were anxious. They, do, they couldn't trust God to provide. And I think also, as you were saying, Emmy, that they had, they had lusts that they wanted to fulfill, and that meant get more money. Now, do Christians still need to keep the Sabbath today? Part of the Ten Commandments. But do we need to keep it? The answer to that is both yes and no, depending on what you mean. Though the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath was just one of a greater series of ceremonial laws that served as a picture of the coming salvation in Christ. When Christ came, we saw in full what the ceremonial pictures had depicted. And the ceremonies, therefore, were no longer necessary. For example, we do not sacrifice animal offerings today to cover sin because Jesus is our sin offering, accomplishing a once and for all covering. We do not eat clean versus unclean animals today because Christ has made all foods clean to us by cleansing us from within. We also do not keep the Sabbath day today because Jesus has become our Sabbath rest We are no longer trying to work in the sense of we are no longer trying to work to perfectly keep God's law because Christ did it for us. Therefore, we rest by faith in Christ's righteousness. So in that sense, we don't keep the Sabbath. It's been fulfilled. But in another sense, we do keep the Sabbath, just in a different way. Rather than setting aside the seventh day each week to rest from physical work, we continually rest in Christ's supernaturally accomplished work on our behalf. It's the same as salvation. If you rest in in Christ's accomplished righteousness for you, then you keep the Sabbath. If you drift from that, if you turn back to a works-related gospel, then you're not keeping the Sabbath. You are trying to work once again instead of resting in the Sabbath that God provided. And you may ask, but 
I thought Sunday was the Christian Sabbath. Isn't it the Christian's new Sabbath? Well, historically, Sunday has often been treated like a new Sabbath for Christians. But to make Sunday into a new Sabbath, in the same sense that the Israelites thought of it, would directly contradict the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Listen to Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hear what Paul's saying there? No one can call you out for not keeping the Sabbath, Paul says, because the Sabbath was just a shadow. We now have the full substance. It's Christ. Now, can you set aside Sunday as a special day of rest and worship to God? Of course. But this is not the same as keeping the fourth commandment. Romans 14, 5-6 talks about this precisely. Paul is talking about people who have different convictions of conscience. And he says this, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. In other words, if you want to set aside one day as a kind of Sabbath day to God in your life, you can, but you're not required to. Does this mean, then, that you don't need to be in church on Sundays? No. That's a wrong application. Because the scriptures also tell us in Hebrews 10, 23-25, that we are to hold fast our confession together. We are to consider how to stimulate one another to good deeds, to love and good deeds, and we're not to forsake our assembling together. Encouraging one another is what we're supposed to do. When do we assemble? Usually on Sundays. So you've got to be part of that assembly. When your assembly gathers, you want to be a part because that's how you're going to be able to obey those commands, to encourage, to receive instruction, to minister, stimulate one another to good deeds, etc. One final thought when it comes to Christians keeping the Sabbath. There is also still practical wisdom in taking time off each week not to work. Not only to help you refresh and recharge yourself, but also as an expression of the same kind of trust that the Israelites were also to express. That is, that God, you know, and you believe that God will provide for you no matter how much or how little you are able to work. You want to talk more about the Sabbath, we can do that later. Another question. Eh, I kind of gave that one away, but did God intend for these Ten Commandments to be obeyed only externally or both externally and internally? Internally. How do we know that? How do we know that these commandments are not merely external? Because some of them sound merely external. Yeah, Rob. Right. Right. That's a great observation, Rob. One of the ways we obviously know this is because Christ interprets the law for us. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. You've heard, don't commit adultery, but if you lust after another woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. So we see that from Christ himself. We know that the law also is internal, but also the Ten Commandments themselves, they show an internal aspect. 
We saw in commandment 10, it reaches into the heart. The intention of the, the Ten Commandments was always to go internal as well, as commandment 10 and commandment 1 show us. Moreover, it's only logical that if the outward act is evil, then the desire to do the outward act or desire consistent with that outward act is also evil. How could we think, oh, it's wrong to murder, but not necessarily wrong to want to murder somebody or to want to hurt somebody? It's the same thing. It just hasn't been carried out yet. So, of course, yes, the, the Ten Commandments were always meant to be internal as well as external. Now, how should we understand the Ten Commandments' relationship to the rest of God's law? We often hear the Ten Commandments being talked about in a very hallowed way. Oh, the Ten Commandments. Don't break one of the Ten Commandments. How is the Ten Commandments different or related to the rest of God's commands? Because, after all, God gave many more commands besides the Ten Commandments. And many of those other commands had serious consequences if they were broken, including death. You say, oh, you break one of the Ten Commandments, you die. Well, that's true in many, many cases. But there are other commands that you could break that will also result in death. So I don't think it's good for us to say that the Ten Commandments were the most important or the most serious of God's commands, because there are other really important and serious commands too. So how did the Ten Commandments relate to the rest of God's law? Yeah, Richard. Yeah. yeah, that's a great way to describe it, like a skeleton or an outline or a summary. They're like an outline of God's whole law, a summary of God's whole law. That's the way we should see the Ten Commandments. Just as Jesus was able to summarize and distill God's commands into just two rules, love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, you can also summarize or put into bullet points God's law by referring to the Ten Commandments. Indeed, just as you were saying, Richard, the rest of the laws presented in the Pentateuch will be applications and further illustrations of the principles given in the Ten Commandments. Say, well, if it's wrong to commit adultery, well, here are all the different ways that it's wrong to commit adultery. Or all the ways that that it's wrong to dishonor the, the marriage covenant that God instituted. We see that in the rest of the Pentateuch. And same thing with the other commandments. Therefore, it was appropriate, if we see the Ten Commandments as a summary and as like an outline of the law, it was appropriate for God to speak the Ten Commandments to all the people of Israel. Because, in essence, God was expressing his whole law to them. He was summarizing it for them. But why give Israel this law? Why tell Israel his commands? What's the point? This is the last part of the lesson um, today. What was the purpose of God's Ten Commandments and the rest of God's law? I would say that there are several purposes, but what's one? Yeah, Steve. I think it it, um, makes Israel very distinct. Um, As as, as you're going through these things, I mean, if you don't mind me taking a step back, I mean, right from after the fall, these things started to come into place. The thou shalt not murder. Mm. Mm. And, you know, and then you see that 
I've got a number of good thoughts there, Steve. Thanks for sharing those. But first of all, your point that many of the things expressed in the law, they were not really new concepts. They were things that were already seen in the history of humanity. And God had made clear that certain things were not right, certain things were um, good, and certain things were evil to him. Like Cain and Abel, where he saw that, of course, murder is wrong. Or even that the, at the creation, the Sabbath was set, set apart as a special day. And you made, the, you made note that but when God gave Israel these commands, it was definitely going to set them apart from other people. And I would, I would go even further to say that God was showing them, if you're going to be my people, this is how you must act. This is how you must behave. This is how you must live. God was showing them what would be required for his people to be in covenant with him. And it, and it goes back to it, like you said, Steve. It goes back to what God had done in the beginning. What else? Why else was the law given? Yeah, Craig. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about that more, but just repeat what you said. To show us what sin is. Show us what righteousness is, and, and by extension, to show us what sin is, and then show that we cannot keep the rules we, uh, to, to be accepted by God. What else? Those are some really important aspects to uh, why God gave us the law. Yes, Sue? Yeah, going back to a little bit to what Craig was saying, but to repeat your comment, this was to give guidance to people in their everyday lives, but also to really make clear to them what sin is. It's not that God had never made that known. Like Steve was saying, there was, some, there was revelation even in the beginning, in the, the beginning of the scriptures, and we don't even know necessarily how much people knew before the giving of the law to Moses and to Israel, but it was going to make it really clear. I'll say some other things, and I'll come back to some of the points that, that you just expressed, that you guys just expressed. The law has a number of purposes. And one is to do us good. And if you've been a Christian for a while, perhaps you appreciate this, but God's laws are really good. They do not merely carry accompanying blessings mysteriously or supernaturally by God, but the laws themselves are wise. They're smart. If you keep the laws, you will live a wise life. On a purely practical basis, the laws of God are good, including the Ten Commandments. Related to that, the law of God, they show us God's great character. They show us what he loves, what he hates, what he thinks, or how he seeks to bless good and punish evil, what kind of reverence God is due. He shows us all of that in the law. And when we unite that to how we see that the laws are wise and they bring benefit to the people who keep them, we say, wow, God is really kind. He is really good to give us this law. He really is good. He really hates evil. He really is due reverence. He really is great. God's law reveals God's character. And as you were saying, God's law also shows us God's required standard. 
God reveals his good character, and we realize that he is completely holy. We realize what kind of holiness is required to be God's people and to dwell with him, and that kind of holiness is perfect holiness. Complete obedience to God's commands all of the time, internally and externally. That's to be like God. And as many of you were saying, if we didn't have God's commands to show us this, we would still be responsible to be holy, but we wouldn't have as good of an idea of what it looked like to be holy. But God shows us what true holiness is, what true perfection is, because he gave us his law. He says, this is what perfection looks like. Keeping this all the time, internally and externally. But we know that none of us are able to do that. Even though Israel said, yes, we will... We will obey these laws. They very quickly were not able to do that. They broke, and less than, or maybe about 40 days after receiving the Ten Commandments, they've broken maybe half the Ten Commandments. They broke out into an immoral, idolatrous, religious feast. They were to be set apart, but even in their desire, their wish to be set apart as God commanded them, they realized that they couldn't perfectly do that. But God never intended for Israel or for us to achieve acceptance by perfectly keeping God's law. Though we know God's standard of righteousness and agree that it is a good standard, yes, these are all good and wise laws, we nonetheless cannot reach it. But that's because there's a fourth purpose of God's commandments. It shows us our sin, it shows us God's standard of righteousness in order that we might do what? Turn to Christ. Turn to God's mercy. The fourth, a fourth purpose of the law is to lead us to God's mercy in Christ. I want to read two sets of verses to you. Galatians 3.21-26 and Romans 3.19-26. You can turn there if you want, but Galatians 3.21-26 says this. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Actually, I'll I'll skip the Romans passage, but it says something similar, how the law was intended to shut shut us up under sin. Show us that, no, there's no way you're keeping God's perfect law. In order that we might seek God's mercy, we would say, God, your law is good, but I can't keep it. I just need you to show mercy to me. And God, in his great character and his great kindness, says, I have provided a way to show mercy to you. To the Israelites, they didn't know what that way exactly was yet, but they knew that they had to cry out to the mercy of God. But we've seen that mercy revealed in Christ. God sent his own son. The Ten Commandments and God's commands in general were always meant to show us that we cannot meet God's good and required standard of righteousness. The law showed us that it was was only on the basis of God's mercy that we could ever be declared righteous. God extended such mercy to us in the substitutionary work of his son. Faithful Israelites look forward to this provision, and we look back 
All of us are justified by faith in God's mercy. No one was ever justified or meant to be justified by keeping the law, by works. Jesus suffers for the sins of those who believe in him, those who believe in him to be their Lord and Master. And Jesus gives them his perfect righteousness that they might stand holy and justified before God. But that's not the end of the law because God puts his Holy Spirit in the people who believe in him. He makes them alive and he enables them to be obedient where they could not be obedient before. No longer motivated by fear of what might happen if you didn't perfectly keep the law. Believers are motivated by love for the Savior who kept the law on their behalf and therefore they gratefully obey God's commands. So we're not redeemed from the law so that we might live licentiously. No, God saved us so that we can do what we always wanted to do but we're never able to do, which is to obey God's law. Obey God's commands. The Ten Commandments and the whole Old Testament law were always intended to act as a tutor to lead us to God's mercy in Christ. If you have more questions about this or other things we talked about today, please come see me afterwards. Before I forget, though, I said this at the beginning, but in case any of you missed it, we have free workbooks for the next quarter. If you would like to sign up for a free workbook, there is a sign-up sheet on the back table. Please go right to that after the end of Sunday School. Put your name down, so that way we know to be able to get you a workbook. We're going to be ordering that sometime this week, so definitely do that now. And if you're listening to this via recording, please send me an email. Let's close in prayer. Father, your word is so great. Your law is amazing. Amazing and just the wisdom and the kindness of it. Ten commandments and everything else included. But also, God, and and what its true purposes were. And we know that one of those purposes, that great purpose, was to point us to Christ. Lord, we can never be found righteous by simply trying to keep your law. Because we can't do it. We can't do it all the time. We can't do it perfectly. We can't do it internally and externally. But you did it. You did it in your Son. Christ did it. So that those who believed in him would receive his righteousness and he would take their sin. Oh, thank you for that perfect provision. We rejoice in, your, in, your, in the wisdom of the salvation that you have created, Lord. That all glory would go to you. Lord, you do indeed deserve all the glory for your kindness, for your justice, for your greatness. Lord, help us to enjoy more of that today in our service. In Jesus' name, amen.